Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. When I was a little girl, I remember learning about the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and this whole ordeal with worshiping the golden calf and thinking that as far as it goes within the people of God, I had it made. When it came time to confess, I really had to rack my brain to find anything. I didn't lie or cheat or kill anyone. And things started to look a little more iffy when we got to the commandments of honoring your mother and father. But I loved the Lord, and I had definitely never even seen an idol. So those lofty words from the Ten Commandments, they didn't bother me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Got it. I can check that box. It was later in my teenage years when I first heard a pastor unpack that commandment. And his life application approach made idols more than those ancient Near Eastern golden statues and opened up the door to anything that takes our attention and our devotion away from God. That's when I realized that my spotless record was blown. In our passage for today, the Israelites find themselves in hot water too. They grew tired of waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain So Aaron told them to gather all the golden earrings that they had. They melted it down and molded it into a statue, the image of a golden calf. And ta-da, they had a new God to worship. Now, if you read scripture, you know this is not the first time and this is not the last time that something like this happens. The socio-historical context of the ancient Near East was swimming with gods. It was a polytheistic setting, and so many gods were competing for allegiance and local authority. So the Bible then consistently warns its people against the worship of these other gods, against the worship of idols, to emphasize the importance of the one true God. So this commandment that we highlight today, it's part of a strong, well-developed scriptural theme. However, even with this background information, the prohibition against idols can seem puzzling. To me, it's less obviously beneficial than the other thou shalt nots. I mean, we can understand the value for a community when its members commit to not killing or lying or coveting. We can recognize the positive impact of keeping the Sabbath holy and the importance of being serious when we say God's name. 
But what about not having idols? That requires some more exploration because at first glance, it might seem that having an idol too around could be harmless. Certainly these other tribes around the hero, Hebrews, they made images to support their experience of worship. Throughout history, humans have been drawn to physical representations, to symbols, as a means of connecting with the divine. After all, idols can serve as tangible reminders of our faith, providing a focal point for devotion. In her book, Gathering Those Driven Away, Wendy Farley says, it is all the people of the earth, it seems, who have divine images of the divine to comfort and to orient them, even if they know that the images themselves are not literally gods and goddesses, they at least have something to inspire their imaginations as they worship, as they seek healing, protection, guidance. So, this commandment, I mean, one of ten, this commandment to not make an idol to worship Farley says it's like a splash of cold water. It's a challenge. It asks us to re-examine our natu natural orientation toward security, toward comfort in our faith lives. It asks us to explore our predilections toward certainty. Ultimately, the commandment reminds us of the risk we run of reducing our amazing, mysterious God to something that can be contained or controlled. In the end, Farley lands firmly on God's side in the instructions against the idols. She says, the austerity demanded by this commandment is entirely alien to the human heart, but even as difficult as it is, the prohibition against idol-making is an act of generosity and tenderness from God to remind God's people that nothing from our imaginations is adequate to the creating and liberating power of the divine. Nothing. This weekend, I spent some time in a church setting. I was in Jonesboro at First Presbyterian Church for a small church conference. And it was a great way to meet people from around the presbytery, to find out just exactly where our presbytery per capita goes, to get some tips for discernment and for new approaches to the metrics that we use to determine our Presbyterian lives. And believe it or not, the morning sermon was about idols. So when our preacher started exploring how churches push Jesus out of the center to cede power to other things, to focus on other things, she brought up this commandment and this natural human predilection to worship idols. Examples of the church pushing Jesus out of the center and putting 
idols in the center were many, and we explored them all. Examples include, but are not limited to, I'm sure you could add some of your own, but one of the idols of the church would be church growth. Worship numbers, financial stability, institutional longevity. There was a lot of talk about church buildings as idols, specific rooms, specific functioning. The past was offered up as an idol too. Politics came up, the idol of like-mindedness a country club mentality where church is a place where we know we'll be around people who all vote the same way. There are a lot of things that are good about buildings and supportive community and worship numbers and growth. But when they push Jesus out of the center and they take the place of God, they become idols. Do you know this has even happened with the Bible, which is kind of wild. But it wasn't that long ago when the Presbyterian Church, it wasn't that long ago because I remember it as a pastor, when the Presbyterian Church split. And it was around the correct, uh, the idea of a correct biblical interpretation. I mean, this is puzzling to me. We are talking about a holy book with four distinct views of the same exact thing, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and we call them all, and have for a very long time, we call those four different views all the gospel. So how can there be only one right way to see and understand Christ, to interpret Scripture, but... The idealization of the Bible gave it a power to split the church. And Scripture turned into a litmus test, proving whether or not one was a worthy disciple, whether or not one was loved. So even the Bible can be an idol. There was a new one that I had been thinking about, and it came up on Saturday as the small churches, this is going to be something y'all have said before, so, you know, it's going to be a ouch, ouch, somebody once said to me. I've said it before, too. The lamentation of many small churches that they no longer have young families. And we find ourselves worshiping a new idol. The idol of the young family an object of great devotion. We exaggerate their value. We place incredible importance on them. Churches construct budgets that cater to this population. Hire personnel dedicated to that growth. Capital campaigns raise funds for gyms and sports programs that rival YMCAs. And almost all of the churches that I am aware of give some sort of subsidy to a parent's morning out or to a community preschool. In the church, we believe that young families can bring blessings, protection, or favor 
outside of the existence of the power and authority of God. How many times have you heard it said, maybe have you said yourself, what the church needs to survive is more young families. What the church needs to survive is more young families. Do you see how the idol of family has replaced Jesus in that sentence? What the church needs to survive is God. It's God. And what's more, as we approach this season of looking at how the institutional church has pushed people out, for the furtherance of the institution, as we look at that, what we have to say is when we make an idol of the bourgeoisie family, we drive others away. When we program for and dream of only Christian families, we are missing out on the nearly 40% of the American population who have never been married before. We may also be forgetting our widows and our widowers, our blended families. Same-sex marriages are considered taboo in many denominations. And even in open and affirming churches like the PCUSA, there are less likely to be married families of same-sex couples sitting in the pews. So that's so many people who are pushed out, left out, driven away by our obsession and idealization of mom, dad, and two and a half kids. There's also the issue of divorce. In the Catholic Church, marriage is a sacrament. You cannot take communion if you're divorced, even now, until that relationship has been annulled. I think isn't that 50% of the population that's been divorced? So can't come to the communion table? At least not within the correct boundaries that are set by the Pope. And I'm not going to just blame the Catholics because Presbyterians, and maybe some of you know this, shun divorcees too. We may not be as open about it, you know, as these other churches, but... I have been in many congregations where one of the individuals in a divorce is asked not to participate fully in the life of the congregation. And this is even when we know that divorce happens for good, loving, Christian reasons. That love within the relationship has been distorted or painful. Maybe there's been betrayal or violence. Even when two individuals make the thoughtful, mature decision to be single, the church does not easily find a place for them. Instead, we hold on to the American family idol. You know, Jesus himself was quite disruptive when it came to the idea of family family of origin. Do you know this? From the cross, he points to his mother and he says, Woman, you have a new son. And he points to his disciple who presumably already had a mom and said, this is your new mother. And it's not just that. There was one day when he was out teaching and talking to the crowds and his mother and his siblings, they were waiting outside the synagogue for him to wrap things up. 
and get on their way. And someone told him, Jesus, look, your mothers and your brothers, they're standing outside and they want to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here, here is my family. It's popular now to talk about friendsgiving or family. This is another new word that we can put in our church dictionary, although it's not solely found in the church. Family, have you heard it? It combines friends and family, and it describes a close-knit group of individuals who share a deep bond and who support one another as if they were family, even if they are not related by blood. And Jesus was the first to know it. <laughs> I think it's all summed up very well by a scholar named Richard Cleaver. He talks about idols as the false gods we worship because they are easier to manage than the real thing. And we have made a certain type of family into an idol because it, unlike the living God, gives us permission to confine our concern to only our kin and our kind. We have made this certain type of family into an idol because it, unlike the living God, gives us permission to confine our concern only to our kind and our kin. Jesus The gospel, the church that is focused on God, will always call us, always call us to move beyond care for just ourselves and our own, always. It is the gospel message. It is the focus of Christ. There is not one person who Jesus meets that he does not see. There is not one person Jesus meets that he does not serve, whether it's a religious other like the Samaritan woman or a political other like a tax collector, a moral other like the Roman centurion, a sexual other like a prostitute, an economic other like a poor woman or a rich man, an able other like the blind or the lame or the diseased. There is not one human being that Jesus does not know and love and recognize as a beloved child of God. So friends, or family, or family, here's the rub. We are not Jesus. I'll let you in on a little secret here. But we are human, and we will not be so open as that to the mystery of the God-bearing divine in all those we meet. We will not. We will mess up. We will prefer systems. We will sift through the amounts of interactions we undertake each day. We will reach for idols 
to help us sort and anchor and orient in the mystery. However, family, we must remember that this prohibition against giving things other than Jesus, the focus and time and attention, we must remember that it is a command. It is a commandment against taking one particularity, even something that could be good. It is a command against taking one particularity of the immensity of God and saying it is the whole thing. It is one of the Ten Commandments, and they're given by a generous God. I love the children's curriculum, Godly Play, so I'm going to end with the way that they talk about what the commandments are for us and what they mean for us to do. The commandments are called, in the children's story, the ten best ways. The ten best ways to live. And they're given by a generous God to offer us ways to love each other, to love God. And the closing line is the best. And it's a closing line that should encourage us today. The ten best ways to live, it is hard, maybe even impossible, but we are supposed to try. To God be the glory, time without end. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.